KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. McKee is the director of the American Studies program at LaSalle University, and for the last several years, he has been teaching a course that examines the intersection of William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, and Sam Hinkie, the former GM of the 76ers and the architect of what became known as The Process, the approach Hinkie took in building the franchise that proved pretty polarizing as the Sixers and Hinkie were willing to not be good for a length of time in order to accumulate valuable draft picks and financial freedom. Now, Hinky left the Sixers in 2016, but we were obviously fascinated by this concept and wanted to learn more. So we caught up with McKee to talk about the course, why he decided to teach it, and how it came together. This is a lot of fun. Give a listen. So to start, what is this course called and who takes it for the most part at LaSalle? It's funny, Matt, because in looking at titles, I wanted a title that reflected the city, and I wanted it to look at both Sam Hinkie and William Penn in a similar lens. Uh, and so when I first thought of the, the title, it was originally to have been Trusting Penn's Process. But the more we looked into it before it ran, I couldn't give Hinkie second billing. And so as Trusting Penn and Hinkie's Process it more reflected what, what I, I and, and we wanted to do at LaSalle. So what we have in there are freshmen coming in, and they must take a first-year seminar, and they have choices. What I like is I do get students in there who select being there. Sometimes <laughs> it passes them by. Trusting Penn and Hinkie's process, if you don't know who Sam Hinkie is, they do know Penn, um, and they hear process enough. So I always ask them in the first class, why did you take the class? Most of them will will say, I'm a basketball fan. I I know who Sam Hinkie is. I know Joel Embiid as the process. And sometimes they'll even say, did Penn have a process? Um, I wanted to learn more about William Penn and the city. So that's kind of how they come in. And it's funny, even those students who are not basketball fans, and I'd say... It's probably 60, 40 female male. I do get occasionally a basketball player in there who thinks it's going to be a basketball course. And so I have to tamp them down a little bit. But for the most part, I think even those students who are not interested, I won't say not interested, but are not really informed in terms of the 76ers or who Sam Hinkie is and what he was trying to do in that that three-year period. I think they find it fascinating for the most part. So talk to me a little bit about the origin story of putting this together. What's the background for creating a course that compares a a former Sixers GM who took a novel approach to team building and the founder of Pennsylvania? I think it helped for me being in American Studies, which really is an interdisciplinary look at American life, culture, and in this case, the city of Philadelphia. My background, which is what kind of allowed me to to make this proposal, is in English and history. I'm also not a basketball coach, but I coached for 20 years at the high school level. 
And so I, I've always had an interest in sports. And I felt it was such a great concept. A subject like American studies really lends it to it so that you can use sports, you can use literature, history. We have music in there. We have sports in terms of Rocky Balboa and Silver Linings Playbook plays little parts in there. And so the pen hanky become almost the, um, the design, if you will, that allows you to build around. So it's not a pure history course in that we really don't go chronologically. It's not a sports course in that we don't entirely delve into sports. But what I try to do is take elements of history, arts, sports, literature, and look at them and, and the city of Philadelphia, really, uh, through the lens of Penn's ideals in the frame of government and Hinckley's, not just from the manifesto, but also his interviews uh, on in YouTube and the stuff that he's done at analytics conventions and show kids how that approach goes way beyond simply X's and O's and drafts in basketball. So kind of take me through, give me, you know, kind of the, the Cliff's notes version of, of the course. What are, you know, what would I learn if I'm, if I'm taking this kind of start me, you know, from the beginning. Okay. I'll try to give you the, the cliff notes. <laughs> we, we actually begin the course with the first major session being the study of Penn's frame of government, the influences on it, and the key ideas involved in it. And we match them up in this kind of side-by-side -side presentation with Hinckley's key ideas from, from his resignation letter. Surprisingly, there's a strong matchup. I always start with taking the longest view in the room as the overarcher, um, because Penn really was looking down the road and building a great city. And um, in his case, the city grew too fast, even for his speculations. And for Hinckley, I really think in the three years, Philadelphia was well along. Record may not have shown it, but in terms of his ideals of the longest view, they really were going that direction. And so once, once we had that, started to look at some of the ideas like humility that Hinky talks about all the time. The idea of uh, one of my favorite quotes that is almost interchangeable. Hinky talks about it's preferable to be wrong for the right reasons than it is to be right for the wrong reasons. And it matches up almost uh, in a paraphrase with what Penn was going for in terms of creating this experiment and trying things that had never been tried before, governmentally, a bicameral government, for example, citizens' rights, freedom of religion, which were maybe not analytical per se, but the ideas were to bring in a population that would raise the standards of Philadelphia. And I think the other thing that struck me pretty early, and one of the modules that we do in there, 
when Penn came over, Penn fully intended when he built his summer home in Pensbury, he brought over slaves to work in his mansion. And certainly the ideas of Quakerism don't necessarily mesh there. There, there was a religious leader in Germantown who took him to task and said, your ideas are great, but in practice, how can you be this? And he said, you know, you're absolutely right, uh, and, and changed the laws. And I think Hinky talk, has talked about that, the idea of, you know, admitting when you're wrong and revamping and learning from those mistakes. And I think in both cases, they were answerable to higher calls. Ultimately, I guess for Hinky, it was the NBA who really pulled the plug on him. But Penn had that hanging over Pennsylvania for 20 years. He was simply a proprietor, a general manager, if you will, for Pennsylvania, the king controlled. And he was constantly defending his position and defending uh, what was going on in Pennsylvania, just as Hinky more or less had to do. And I think the other thing that I found interesting about the two as men, I kind of bring Edgar Allan Poe in here as well, in terms of uh, very private people. I think he talks about not being comfortable with being out there in public. And Penn was very much the same way. And yet both of them really had to go to the wall for their beliefs. And that's why you wind up with an Edgar Allan Poe in Philadelphia, because it was the city that was more embracing. Again, using him as an example, born in Boston, growing up in New York, a lot of time in Baltimore. I think for the most part, Philadelphia was the most comfortable fit for him and wrote arguably his best stuff in Philadelphia. And I think with some of those process players, obviously I'm not comparing Robert Covington to Edgar Allan Poe, but certainly the opportunities that Covington got here, I remember just reading in that first draft, they were going to draft him in the second round and use a two-way contract. And he didn't want a two-way contract and was going to wait. And in the end wound up taking it because he would have more opportunities here than he would have had. I can't remember which team was going to draft him in the second round. But just those kinds of comparables. And I think, to me, it's what I love about American studies. It's that human element. I always tell students, not just in this course, but when we look at history, when we look at society, we're looking at it through the lens of people, not through the lens of events. And I think that's why the hinky pen connection worked so well. The other thing I found interesting in here, there's almost a, I don't want to say a godly sign, but a, there's a spirituality to Hinky's followers. You know, whether it's Hinky died for our sins um, or Hinky as apostle. And I think Penn had that same vibe about him. He certainly was a devout Quaker and did include Quaker principles but was not, he was not espousing a religion per se. But I think that's what made them so appealing, that there was this otherworldliness to their ideas. They had a higher calling in this. 
and Philadelphia is a city. I, I, I just found Philadelphia so interesting in that because Philadelphia is such a blue collar, hard scrabble town that I think there, there is sometimes a lack of that higher calling. You know, yes, we love guys who will, who will slide, who will, who will play their hearts out. And to a certain extent, I think that was what probably turned the lock for Ben Simmons was that feeling in Philadelphia that he was not one of us, that there was not that belief. And I think for those in the process, that was kind of the cardinal sin. And I think for Penn, similarly, Penn wanted people that were not necessarily loyal to him, but had the absolute belief in what was transpiring. It was such a unique thing. And I think both of them, obviously, Hinky takes huge heat over the process, especially those first few years until they start, you know, you start to see that last year as he's leaving, start to turn around. But I think Penn had very much the same kind of doubt in people and was constantly in the state of proving in those ways. And, and just one final on there, Penn wanted to bring a commonwealth, a republic, a democracy to Philadelphia and had what really amounted to two houses comparable to our Senate and House of Representatives and with the thought that he as governor would propose bills. But very quickly, they said, well, why just you? And I think and, and they take then they vote the possibility that the House can propose passed repeal bills, et cetera. And I think that disappointed Penn for a bit, that they didn't see him in that way. But I think Hinky saw things similarly when the Colangelos came in. I always got the feeling he tried to make it work. I, I don't know that to be true, but I, I, I do think that idea of the boots on the ground very often not being able to see above the treetops in either case. And so when, when we're talking kind of about how it gets applied, I'll stick with sports for one. I, I do a good bit with the, the Philadelphia athletics and the vision there of Scheib and Connie Mack and looking at professional sports in Philadelphia as being something higher, even the old, Scheib Park was built as almost um, a, a French imperial style of architecture. And it kind of raised the game of baseball. And their vision was that it would be the community centerpiece. My dad grew up down there. So as a kid, I, I went to Connie Mack Stadium. In the early part of the 20th century, they had shopping in there. They had automobile repair under the stadium. And it really was kind of a, a centerpiece as much as, in a way, City Hall was. And the believing, the believability in there, uh, just one quick line, and you may know this line, when the athletics, their inaugural season, they lost to John McGraw's Giants. And McGraw said to them, what you've got here is a white elephant. And they embraced that and to, till today. The athletics have the elephant on the globe as their insignia on their uniform. And, and it kind of embraced it. 
and within a couple of years had beaten McGraw's Giants a couple of times in what may have been the greatest team put together. So even the applicability to other sports, while it may not match up exactly, I, I do think the ideas and the ideals there, begin, again, kind of beginning with that, you know, the longest view in the room, it's not going to happen overnight, but if we do the right things and we stick with it, just as Hinky compiled draft choices, even twos, because you can hit on twos. Connie Mack saw in college students who had never been baseball, professional baseball players, much of his athletics at that time were college grads, which was a whole different approach to base, professional baseball. That was the long answer for the short question. No, there it really, really interesting. And it's got me thinking in ways about this that I hadn't thought before. So I'm curious, what's the feedback been from people that have taken this class of, you know, basketball and non-basketball fans? What do you hear from students that, that go through the process? I think they enjoy it. I, you know, it's like anything else. You have those who really love the class because it was, you know, right up their alleys. And, and you have others, I think, that opens some minds, not just about sports, but I'm a big believer that sports is a metaphor for life and life experiences and what it can teach you about yourself and life is well worth the study. Just even a, a couple of pulls from Hinkies, that whole idea of, of having a reverence for disruption. It's not sit back and because we did this last year, we're going to do it again this year. And I think Penn had that same I think that's a Philadelphia thing, a reverence for disruption. And, and going along with that, that hinky idea of having a contrarian mindset. I love when he talked about, and I don't remember which are, there are a couple of great articles that look beyond just the story. Before talking with you, I, I went back yesterday and looked at articles that came out as he was leaving and in, within a year or two of that, and most of which, including the New York Times, talk about what a failure he and it was. And again, that's the short-sighted view, which I think I'm hoping he would chuckle at a little bit. But that also the idea, I, I, rem I remember seeing that he would sit with a different employee every day to get to know them and get their sense of what it was. So even though he a pretty quiet guy, not very much for public exposure. I have the feeling he really valued the opinions of others, whether they changed his mind or not. I, I like, because I see now all the time, and maybe you do too, um, I guess it's Bleacher Report that does it pretty frequently, redrafting a draft. Mm -hmm. He started doing that almost immediately, if I remember. And would do it one year, two years, three years, four years out. And what can we learn from that? What did we miss? How can we learn from that? Which I think for anyone in life is a great thing. And, and the idea that he would journal that to go back to later is a pretty cool idea, which doesn't <laughs> go back to, I'll go back to one student I just bumped into. We're back on campus for the first, really the first time. And the first week, coming out of um, the building, 
I ran into one of my students from two years ago from the first year seminar. And we immediately went into a, a, a process conversation because he had seen, he was looking at the Phillies and what kind of, pro, was there really a process there? <laughs> if you apply kind of Hinky's main ideas, it's hard to see that process. Not necessarily it has to be his, but that there's a discernible process. And you know, the other place I've found interesting, I'll get a number of teachers, future teachers, who kind of talk about teaching and the process of teaching and the idea of self-reflection and taking even the school year as the long view of things and checkpoints along the way. But going back, and I think teachers do this by nature, take a look at what you did this year, almost like redrafting, and what would you do differently? So I think even students who may not know Hinky, know the Sixers well, do many of these things. It, it gives them a frame of reference for that. I do an assignment, which isn't pure Hinky or pure pen, but with Franklin's 13 virtues. And I have students, Franklin kept a, uh, essentially a log sheet every week and would check off if he exhibited those virtues. And I had students keep that for themselves and make a journal entry in terms of why you may have observed this silence, but not <laughs> humility. And what did that say? And how would you do anything differently, for example? Or was the circumstance different? And I think they found that to be an interesting exercise. Really kind of sets things up. And I said, now what you need to know is that Penn actually says he wrote those down when he arrived in Philadelphia at age 18. But nobody can prove that because it doesn't appear until his autobiography when he's in his 70s. So did he take the long view and now at age 70, he writes these down as keys, not just for himself, but for Philadelphians and Americans as an ideal rather than whether he observed them? Because there are a number of them that he didn't really observe. So I'm curious, what do you think? What do you think we things would look like today if the powers to be that panicked and kind of forced Sam Hinkie out the door had done the same with William Penn? That's a great question because there were, without getting too historical, there were three different kinds of of grants from the king. Penn had a proprietorship, which meant he was answerable to the king, but was free to make decisions. Uh, Virginia was merely a company run by the king. And they did not fare so well in the beginning because they really didn't have a process. They wanted to make money, but they spent, they sent a lot of people over who didn't want to work. And so they were almost wiped out starving time because nobody worked hard. Um, they squandered. And I, and I think Philadelphia could have run the same risk in that way. It could have been like Boston with the Puritans were, were hunting witches in Philadelphia. But I think Penn saw the balance there, and which is why Philadelphia became the first city in terms of size. Philadelphia goes from about 25,000 people 
in 1776, right at the Revolutionary War, to half a million by the Civil War. And there are other reasons for it. Um, the city consolidates more of the outlying districts, but it's in some ways that by taking that hundred years long view, Penn was incredibly successful in the experiment. The experiment didn't last because we become a nation, but a lot of the ideas from his, from his frames of government were incorporated in there. For example, one of Penn's ideas in there that, that all men were entitled to life, liberty, and estate property. Uh, Jefferson changes it, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but that was Penn's take. And kind of like Hinckley's letter where he quotes everybody in there, um, fascinating quotes. And Penn took that one from John Locke. So it wasn't all Penn, but I think in both cases, if they weren't the smartest guy in the room, they talked to the smartest guy in the room and picked their brains. I think that's what has made that stuff stand up as appeal. So as a follow-up, what do you think the Sixers might look like today had Sam Hinkie been allowed to continue? Because you talk process, and I think one thing you look at a lot of the Sixers since Hinkie moved on is there isn't a process. We've seen lineups that don't make sense. We've seen rosters that don't make sense, and they – get pushed to higher levels just because of some of the pure talent, specifically Joel Embiid, that allows you to overlook a lot of, of problems. What do you think the Sixers might look like had Hinky been allowed to continue? I don't think they make the Tobias Harris or the Jimmy Butler trades. I, I, I think Covington would still be here. I think Sarge would still be here. I don't know about the Fultz trade. I don't know whether – I just don't see Sam Hinky making that Fultz trade to move up. Was it two spots, one spot, something like that. Yeah, uh, and, and I think he would continue because he's looking at this not being a Joel, Joel Embiid process, but a Sixers process that would last. And I know that's difficult in the NBA with salaries and caps and all of those other things. I think they look largely, but again, I I, I think. The Colangelos on those trades, I, honestly, I think the Elton Brand trades were bad trades. I don't think they were visionary or part of that process. And my final question for you, have you gotten any word that that word of this class has made its way to Sam Hankey at all? You know, before COVID, I had contacted his agent, his literary agent, his speaking prices was way, 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 way up there. Um, I tried to get the university and the provost had an interest, but the provo uh, our provost had left because I, I wanted him to speak to larger than my class. And I, and I thought even if, you know, university wide and a dinner and we could do a dinner and generate some money that way. So I've tried. I wanted to give it another shot. I know every once in a while he was in Washington for the analytics conference. Um, even with Zoom now, I'd love to be able to make some connection there. But yes, even kids will say that at the end of the course. If you if you could get Hinky, we'll be back. And he still has that that cachet. It's pretty amazing. 
He's not gone gentle into that good night, at least in Philadelphia. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.